Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. On the President's Orders is a searing on-the-ground look at President Rico Duterte's deadly campaign against drug dealers and suspected drug users in the Philippines. Told with an unprecedented access to police officials implicated in the killings, families of users, and others from both sides of the nation's war on drugs. We're joined today by the award-winning director-producer James Jones and the award-winning cinematographer and director Olivier Sarbel. To both of you, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. They, thank uh, you. Yes, thank you so much. Since I'm not exactly sure how this story came to you, and I know you've worked together before, you worked on Mosul before this film, but how did this come to you? I mean, it's it's a, been an international story since Rodrigo Duterte became the president of the Philippines, his brash and some say dictatorial rule over the Philippines. But what was it? How did this sort of evolve into the, what we know now as on the president's orders? And I'll start with you, uh, James. So, yeah, as you say, this is the second film we've made together. Uh, we were in the edit finishing Mosul, um, following the story, following the, the subject of these extrajudicial killings in the Philippines, you know, largely the work of Philippines Filipino photojournalists who were going out night after night documenting the dead bodies on the street. Um, it, at the time when we were finishing the edit in 2017, there were, you know, more, more than a dozen people a week were ending up dead on the street, often with their hands bound with duct tape and, you know, signs saying drug pusher, kind of as a warning to other people. Um, and we, you know, I'd done a film about police shootings before. We both covered international subjects where there are these kind of you know, human rights issues at the heart. And we, Olivia actually met a couple of Filipino photojournalists at a war reporting festival. And so that, that was our kind of intro. And then we started to, you know, speak to contacts on the ground there and kind of cobbled together enough money to go on a, a recce for one week and flew out to Manila just to see whether we could get access to the police, you know, try and understand who the people doing the killing were, get inside their heads, understand how they could justify it. Because it felt like the coverage had become slightly formulaic. It was, you know, a lot of dead bodies, but not necessarily uh, kind of understanding who was behind the killing and, mm. and, you know, how they could justify it. Olivier, when you were beginning this project, was it in your mind or had it been established that these extrajudicial killings were the responsibility of the police? Was it something... Was that something that was in doubt? Well, what was important for us, we never went to the Philippines with uh, with an agenda. We never said we're going to the Philippines to uh, to try all the cops. Uh, you know, we, we're not activists. No, we, we, we're journalists. So we wanted to see for ourselves was the situation. Yeah, and I think actually our, our timing when we were on our way there, we were a bit skeptical about our chances of success, because it was a, a moment when even President Duterte had, had to pull the police back from the war on drugs. There'd been a couple of killings of teenagers that had got a lot of coverage, caused protests. And so even he had had to accept maybe it was had gone too far, too many people were being killed. So we thought the police would kind of laugh us out of town, really. And then 
we we were just lucky that we happened to meet this one police chief who publicly would say we're going to stop the killing. But actually what happened was police in uniform stopped killing so many people, but actually had just gone underground. Mm. Off-duty police officers were carrying out these hits. Well, how surprised were you when they granted the, this police chief Modakia. Modakia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jamal Modakia. Yeah. What were you, how surprised or were you when they said, come on in? Yeah, we were pretty shocked. I mean, we'd been to a couple of different police uh, precincts, police forces to, to see what access they'd give us. Because, you know, we we needed to be be there for months, you know, to be able to film whatever we wanted. And we started to get the feeling that this, they were all quite cagey and, and cautious about giving foreign journalists access. But we had dinner with a Filipino journalist and she mentioned Murakio and said, you know, it, I know it sounds crazy because Kalaokan is like the hotspot of the killings. It's like, like the last place you think would give you access. But this new police chief, Murakio, is an attention seeker. Um, and he's so kind of vain that he might just love the idea that you've come all this way to make a film about him. And she was completely right. You know, we showed up at Kalaokan headquarters Within 10 minutes, we were in his office, and almost immediately, he said to us, you can film whatever you want. And then, you know, that once he'd given us that, it was just a matter of, you know, meeting the individual officers. And although he was very uh, happy to open the door for us, it took us uh, weeks, really, to, uh, to win the trust of the police officers, you know, to, to get to know each, each other. And, um, you know, at some point, we were able to kind of disappear into the background and to become became uh, invisible. I'm wondering, was it was it a matter of hubris or was it a matter of he, he really felt that he was going to kind of hit the reset button on the perception of of the police in in the, in his community or around, maybe he was projecting it to, as a window to the outside world. Is it, it, Was that part of the psychology of, do you think? Yeah. Or? Yeah, I think it was a combination of, of both. Uh, there was certainly, at that moment, a kind of push from above to to say that there had been this reset, to send a message that the drugs war was reformed. So he could kind of justify it logically, saying that he was going to show that they'd cleaned it up. Yeah. But I think probably more important was, as you say, the hubristic element, him feeling, you know, I'm I'm going to be a star, these, these guys are going to follow me around and make a film about what a kind of brave and kind of bold leader I am. Uh, not kind of fully understanding how his words and actions would be perceived both outside the Philippines, but also inside. Um, I, I, I don't think also he was, to tell you well, how long we were going to spend time with him. I mean, he probably thought we were going to stay a couple of weeks, maybe, and following them. I see, yeah, and then months later, we were still there, and I think he was kind of a bit <laughs> nonplussed. And, ne- you know, never asked us to leave, so we yeah. carried on. And the reason I'm, I'm, I'm sort of focused on this right now, because this is such a critically important part of the film, is to see the police and this... And I don't think it's they're oblivious to this... To because This is the funny thing about people who are in the midst of a an enterprise like this especially when they know that the president of the of the country has essentially said publicly and loudly that don't worry no matter what you do I've got your back right 
but it is in, it's so fascinating to see the internal day-to-day workings of something that is it's an international crime the the, the things that, in my opinion i'm going to just say from in my opinion what is happening in the philippines it has been happening for many years now is 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 an international crime but but it's the dynamic and again it's so important that we see why and how they're able to essentially internally r- rationalize what they're doing and also to understand the dynamics uh, of the people that are that are being victimized by this insane draconian overreach in in uh, um place i said a, a criminal activity as far as i'm concerned but so that's why i i wanted to kind of understand that dynamic uh, I want to remind listeners we're speaking with uh, James Jones, the director and producer, as well as Olivier Sarbel, director and cinematographer of the film On the President's Orders. It's a documentary film uh, that is screening at the, the Lemley uh, Monica Film Center Friday, October 18th. And it's uh, so you, you really want to see this film. This is one of those films that uh, you think you know the issue of what's been happening in, in the Philippines, but you really don't until you see something like this to quite understand just the, uh, the depth of it and, uh, and why it's so, uh, so troubling. Let's step back just for a half a step here and talk about Rodrigo Duterte and his, so in broad terms, I don't want to get too far into the weeds with him and his ascendancy to the, to the presidency. But did he come in as a law and order guy? Was that always his his shtick was to come in and clean up? And why are why is this attitude towards drugs and drug usage so much of a, a hot button in the Philippines? Is, is is that too complex, Olivier? Do you want to tackle some of that? Break off some of that question, or yeah, let, let me start with that one. But it, okay. yeah, it's a really good question. And he, he, you know, he was seen politically as an outsider. He was like the mayor of a town down in the South where he'd brought crime right down. He was kind of famous for introducing these devout death squads, as they were called. And also, you know, not being a kind of well-educated part of the political elite. He would be rude, he'd be sexist, he'd, people felt like he was kind of a breath of fresh air because he'd like supposedly tell it like it is, you know, similar to some other leaders around the world that we see at the moment. And he chose drugs as the kind of main platform for his campaign. So he, you know, as it happens, the, the drug problem in, in the Philippines is it's not a narco state. You know, it's not completely out of control. It has a drug problem like every other country. But the the drug that is used in the slums is called shabu, which is, is meth. Um, and actually the, the rate of usage of, of meth in the Philippines is lower than in the United States. So this wasn't, this wasn't the issue that was kind of causing a major, major crisis in the Philippines. He just chose it as the issue that he could campaign on. So he said, unlike previous rulers who are corrupt and involved in drug trafficking, I'm going to stamp out drugs. You know, so three million drug users, I'm going to be the, the, the Philippines version of Hitler and wipe them out. Which he, said, he, which he said out loud, by the way. He compared himself exactly. favorably to Hitler in the in. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's the only time I can recall of a, of a leader of a, a nation comparing himself favorably to Hitler. Um, and he, you know, quite in quite a sophisticated way, managed to make Filipinos feel like all their problems could be traced back to drugs. So all crime was caused by drugs. You know, all, 
all the, the issues that Filipinos felt. You know, it's a very poor country. It's huge inequality. He managed to turn drugs into the scapegoat for all people's problems. And so even now, even after all these deaths, you know, tens of thousands of people killed, people, the majority of Filipinos still support him and still support the war on drugs. And that's testament to how effective his propaganda is. Well, is often the case, there's, there's in countries like this, in our country, we're not exempt from this as well, there is a kind of a, a racial or a, a in-group, out-group kind of dynamic to the politics of these kinds of policies and uh, atrocities. Is, is there uh, an indigenous versus, you know, some other group? Is there something of that dynamic involved or is it poor? Is it just the, that the poor are are feared in some way or used as a kind of a, a way in, in which to leverage power? Is there something in that dynamic in, involved in the Philippines? Yeah, I mean, there, there is a slight m- Muslim connection. Like a lot of the slums have a, a higher Muslim population than, than uh, outside. But I think, I think you're right. I think it's mainly a poverty issue. So the people who live in slums are seen as almost expendable. Their lives are kind of worth less. They have the people who are killed are often the poorest of the poor who don't have access to you know, legal support. So the police effectively know that if they kill someone who may or may not be involved in, in low-level drug use or, or drug dealing, they know they'll get away with it because the, the victim's family isn't going to have the resources right. uh, to, to build a proper case against them. So I'd say it's, it's a kind of prejudice. You know, it's not, it's not one racial or ethnic group that's being targeted, but it is on the whole the poorest of the poor. Right. Well, I, I want to say this to our listeners. I know we're, we're talking about sort of big picture parts uh, of this uh, this issue of this situation, but the film itself is on the ground. We are we see some of a, a video camera shot uh, sequence at the beginning of the film that is harrowing and crazy bad, and 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 sort of that kicks off the film. And, but the film is centered on particular individuals, particular families, particular things that are happening. So while it is a macro look at what's happening in some ways in the Philippines, in other ways it's a very intimate look. And to you, Olivier, the, uh, the cinematography and the, your ability to capture these moments with these people that we get to know in the film is, is absolutely spectacular. It really... Uh, um, and. You, I mean, I'm talking about the police as well as the, the people who are on the receiving end of this. And uh, we see how this policy works with these drug lists and then mandatory jail time and, and how that marks them. And we see the we see the on the ground mechanics of how a policy like this can happen. And I think it's Thank so and, and again, it's so instructive and, and it's also so, so compelling. I feel so I, I feel so I know this issue fairly well just because I tried to stay informed but walking away from this documentary I just felt like I understand kind of in the marrow of this these of why this is so even more troubling than I even thought I don't even know if I have a question I just wanted to compliment you and your team well, thank you so much well the film as I said is opening this week and it's going to be screening at the Lemley um, Monica Film Center starting on Friday night, October 18th, and running through that week. Uh, you need to go to, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, you need to go to 
onthepresidentsorders.com uh, website to find out more about the individual screenings. Uh, I know this has been a frontline project as well, PBS's frontline, one of the premier platforms for learning about the world and documentary filmmaking as well. And you'll ever find it is an amazing resource, and it has been for 30-something something years. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that, isn't that a great... Thank God for Frontline. I, you know, for as long. <laughs> I think Frontline was actually founded like the week before I was born. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a cemetery there. A There's some kind of a cemetery there. Well, this <laughs> this is uh, that's fantastic. Uh, and this again, uh, urge people to check this out, however they can. But see it in a theater. I think I think it's a very as I was talking about the cinematography in this. It it's powerful. Well, uh, to both of you, uh, James Jones, uh, director and producer, as well as Olivier. Sir Bill, uh, cinematographer and director, the, congratulations on this film. Um, and uh, to I look forward to future work. I hope you guys are going to continue. Uh, you're on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so all the best to you and moving forward. And please come back anytime you've got something uh, that's ready for the world. Um, I'd, I'd love to have you go back on. So thank you. That's it. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.